0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Professor Jenny Graves is an evolutionary geneticist. When she was just starting out, a friend suggested she work on the genetics of marsupials. But Jenny tried to get out of it, thinking it would make her look like too much of an Aussie stereotype. But what she discovered when she did begin delving into the genetics of kangaroos and koalas and then platypuses was so bizarre and so interesting that she kept going. Over her long and illustrious career, Jenny has led groundbreaking research into the genetics of Australian animals and into how the genes determining sex work in different species. A few years back, this research led Jenny to draw conclusions about the future disappearance of the Y chromosome in humans. That's the one that creates baby boys rather than baby girls. She wasn't looking to be controversial. Jenny saw it as a solid scientific prediction based on the available data. But lots of other people got very worked up about the coming male apocalypse. Now, Jenny is busying herself with something much more straightforward, telling the whole story of the origins of the universe, life, species, and humanity in song. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> as, as I say, Jenny, you've had a very esteemed career. You've been awarded the Prime Minister's Prize for Science, you're an international member of the National Academy of Sciences, etc., etc., etc. When you were a kid in primary school, What did most of the little girls in your class say they wanted to be when they grew up?
1: Well, I remember being asked, I think in grade six, you know, we all had to say what we wanted to be. And most of the little girls wanted to be air hostesses. And I thought, well, I've actually flown on a plane and air hostessing didn't look like that much fun. Hard so work. So I went home and <laughs> hard work, <laughs> and in turbulence with DC4s, it was not a pretty sight. <laughs> so I went home and I asked my mum and dad, what should I say? And they said, well, think about what you like doing and what you're good at. And I said, oh, well, I'm good at maths and I like art. And so my mum said, well, maybe you'd like to design houses. <laughs> So, I learned how to spell "architect," and then, for many, many years, I wrote that down, and teachers were so impressed <laughs> you know they said, "Little Jenny, she really knows what she wants to do. Of course, little Jenny didn't have any idea, but I think I would have been a very happy architect, and in fact, I designed a house at Eltham at uh, 40 years ago and uh, had so much fun actually watching it being built. I think I would have been a happy architect.
0: (laughs) Well, what was the moment that turned you into a happy biologist instead of of a happy architect? What was the moment that got you hooked on biology?
1: Oh, that was funny because we didn't do biology until the very final year of school. And I really did not like biology. There was so much stuff and there was no plan, no periodic table until one day our teacher told us about breeding budgerigars. You know, if you take two, uh, if you take a blue budgie and mate it with a yellow budgie, the progeny are all green. I thought, well, that makes sense. But then if you mate those two green budgies, you get a quarter blue, a half green, and a quarter yellow. I thought, wow, there is a rule. There are rules. And that really made me interested in uh, the rules that govern biology. So genetics I saw as really transcending a lot of the stuff. And of course, evolution is really the one great law. And when I was introduced to that later, it really resonated with me.
0: Tell me what kind of presence science had in your family home growing up.
1: Well, uh, both my parents were scientists. My, My dad Uh, ran the Division of Soils in CSIRO. In fact, he became quite famous for the Marshall Equation. Uh, Marshall is my maiden name, which uh, predicts the movement of water in soils. Uh, And my mother trained as a geologist, but then became an urban geographer. And uh, she was at the university as well. She didn't have a very easy time getting there in the 40s and 50s, as you can imagine. But It didn't really affect me that much. There was no pressure to become a scientist. In fact, the only prizes I won at school were for art and creative (laughs) writing. So it wasn't at all clear that I was going that way. But I guess I I thought, well, being a scientist is a perfectly normal thing to do. Mm. I sort of thought everybody's parents were scientists and everybody was likely to go to the university. It just never occurred to me that that was rather special.
0: As you say, for your mum to be in academia in the 1940s
1: and 50s was rare.
0: What did she tell you about how her pay compared with that of her male colleagues?
1: (laughs) Oh, she had hilarious stories. And the best one was that when the war came, of course, all the blokes left and she was asked as a a part-time demonstrator, which is all women were supposed to do, she was asked to give the lectures for two courses, which she did. And then she complained to the Vice-Chancellor that she got paid £10 less a year than she paid the babysitter, to huh. mind me. So do you know what they did? They raised her salary £10. So <laughs> she came out exactly even. <laughs> and of course, when the war ended and the blokes all came back and they said, oh, thank you very much, Mrs. Marshall, goodbye. And she said, not so fast. And she applied for one of the jobs that she had been doing and she got it. And people were quite horrified. You know, a mother with a young child uh, becoming a lecturer was not the done thing at the time wasn't even the done thing when I was a lecturer and became pregnant. <laughs> so these things take a long time to resolve. And I think there are still probably
0: plenty of families working out those calculations of childcare and pay right to, to this very day. When you talk about getting hooked by biology and then the the driver of biology, genetics and evolution, I mean, genetics is one of those fields, isn't it, where knowledge has, has skyrocketed in the last few decades what oh, were the, absolutely. When you started as an undergraduate in the 1960s, Jenny, what were the big unknowns about
1: genetics? Well, I was lucky that I had a wonderful supervisor in honours who gave me a reading list every one of those was something we didn't know, something (laughs) that didn't make sense. And that included all sorts of uh, weird things in plants that we now see as epigenetics, that is, you know, things that are not coded in the gene, but things that make the genes be expressed or not expressed. Uh, And so there were lots of things that was totally unknown, didn't make sense at all. But you don't learn about those in undergraduate life. You learn about the rules and everything's sort of three to one ratios and that sort of thing. So it was really my introduction to research that got me to realise that we were right on the edge of very big discoveries. What
0: tools were available to study chromosomes, the, the structures which carry the genetic material in cells? I mean, was it just microscopes or what were you able to study these things with?
1: Well, it was just microscopes, but when I did honours, one of my supervisors came back from Harwell in the UK with this brilliant new technique called tritium autoradiography, uh, So what you do is you feed a cell with a radioactive element, and then you can trace where that radioactive element ends up using photographic film. So, you know, it's an incredibly lunky old procedure, but that was the state of the art when (laughs) I did my honours, and that's what I used to look at uh, whether the X chromosome in a kangaroo behaves the same way as an X chromosome in humans and mice, uh, that is, that, of course, there's a a problem with X chromosomes because females have got two of them and males have only got one. So what happens is that one of the X chromosomes is completely shut down in females. And so my first little teeny-weeny project was to see if the same thing happened in kangaroos, and it
0: does. Just take a step back for us, Jenny. So X and Y, these are the the sex chromosomes. What's different about them from all the other chromosomes that, that mammals have?
1: Well, all the other chromosomes, you have two, and that makes sense because you get one set from your mum and one set from your dad. So you have two copies of chromosome 1 and two copies of chromosome 2 and two copies of chromosome 23. But the sex chromosomes are different because you have two copies of the X chromosome in a female but only one in a male. But the male's got this tiny, pathetic-looking little chromosome called the Y chromosome the chromosome that bears a gene that makes us male. So, they, so sex they, chromosomes are very weird. Are they?
0: And they differ in size, do they, the X and the Y chromosome?
1: Oh, absolutely. The X chromosome is quite a decent sort of chromosome. Uh, it's a middle-sized chromosome. It's got about a 1,000 genes on it. The Y chromosome is really very small and is special because it's full of junk DNA. So you
0: were investigating how X chromosomes function in kangaroos and whether it's the same as the way that female sex chromosomes function in humans and in mice, which are animals whose genomes had already been studied a lot more than kangaroos had. What did you conclude, Jenny?
1: Well, I I drew the conclusions that, yes, yes, kangaroos are just the same as mouse and human. One X chromosome is silenced in females. Actually, that turns out to be completely wrong. (laughs) Uh, They're not like humans and mouse at all. They're interesting in very, very, they're different in very, very interesting ways. And I'm still working on the differences that uh, kangaroos show us. And of course, kangaroos are so different from humans and mice, they do a lot of things differently. And differences are what makes genetics. We're always looking for things that are done differently. Mm.
0: You were offered a a PhD scholarship at Adelaide, but instead you wrote a letter to a professor in California. Why did you want to head off to, to Berkeley?
1: Well, that was very funny. If you'd asked me, uh, I I would have said I was quite happy in Adelaide. I'd probably go and get a job. Uh, But I did better than I thought I would in honours, and I got offered the chance to stay in Adelaide and continue what I was doing. And... uh, I just said the first thing that came into my head because I knew I was ready for some adventure. So I said, Oh no, I thought I'd go to Berkeley, California, and work for Daniel Mazier, who's the great god of cell biology. And I'll guarantee I'd never even thought of doing a PhD, let alone with the great God, Masia. But having said it, <laughs> I had to do it. And my boss would see me in the corridor, have you written to Professor Masia yet? So I finally did. I said, you know, dear Professor Masia, I'm little Jenny Nobody from Adelaide and I'd really like to come and work with you. And he was so nice. He was absolutely wonderful to me. And he pointed me uh, up to the new department of molecular biology, I'd never heard of molecular biology, but in fact, I had a very good background for molecular biology because I studied chemistry as well as genetics. and so that worked out really very well. You, but you know it was a complete uh, on-the-spot decision. <laughs> you, a
0: whim. <laughs> you then had to um, convince this great God Mazier to let you in his lab, though you wanted to, to bring your research back to his lab rather than just in molecular biology. How did you have that meeting with him?
1: Well, that was rather a non standard thing to do, but he'd been very friendly. And so I thought, well, I better go and actually knock on his door and meet him. He had been away when I had arrived. So it wasn't until the summer that I plucked up my courage and went down to this huge, huge life science building. And I didn't know where his office was. So I walked right around this huge square and then finally I saw his office and his light was on and I panicked and I walked right by it and I walked around the building again and again I thought, no, I don't think I'm quite ready yet so I'll do one more lap of the buildings, which I did (laughs) and then I knocked on his door no answer. So I was quite relieved. I turned around and I bumped right into him. He was coming back from the cigarette <laughs> machine, looking very guilty. <laughs> He's saying, I'm supposed to have stopped smoking. So he invited me into his lab and, and said, look down this microscope and see what you can see. And I looked down the microscope and there were a bunch of little dots. And I said, I see a bunch of little dots. They're not chromosomes, are they? You should see kangaroo chromosomes. They're really big and beautiful. These little dots are sea urchin chromosomes and they're not much good down the microscope. You should see the chromosomes we've got in Australia. We've got the best. Indeed. (laughs) Our chromosomes, you know, they're bigger than Texas.
0: (laughs) This was the mid-1960s when Berkeley, you know, was full of student protest, the rise
1: of the counterculture. What was it like being there then? Oh, that was terribly exciting. And I'd actually been involved in student affairs in Adelaide. I was elected to the SRC and I went to the National Union of Australian University students meetings. So I thought I was, you know, quite a political activist until I got to Berkeley <laughs> and I found out that no, it's a whole nother level. There were people being shot on the streets. There was a National Guard around the campus with bayonets fixed. There was all sorts of things going on. There were helicopters overhead spraying students with mace. Uh, It was another level. So of course I I was very involved uh, at a fairly a fairly local level. My department was very much involved in the free speech movement.
0: You arrived safely back in Australia and began a position lecturing in genetics at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Why were you reluctant to go back to marsupials?
1: Uh, I'd been working on a very new technology in Berkeley that is, fusing cells, uh, which is a very powerful way to look at the factors in the cells. So you can take a human cell and a mouse cell and you can fuse them together and you can ask what the chromosomes do. Do they proceed along their own paths or do they influence each other? So that was my PhD work um, and I was—I published that. And I intended to really lazily do the same kind of thing in in Melbourne. Um, but then my friend Des Cooper, whom I'd known in Adelaide and who is was a person who brought me to La Trobe, said, well, why don't you use it technology to map genes in kangaroos? And I remember I was very rude to him and said, well, you know, why would anybody want to do that? Uh, but just to be nice to him, I <laughs> did start mapping and it was fascinating because they weren't completely the same. And they weren't completely different. You know, people would say, oh, you won't find out anything. They'll be just the same as humans. Somebody else would say, oh, they'll be so different. You won't find out anything. But in fact, they were right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And Des took me aside and said, you know, Jenny, uh, marsupials are an independent experiment in mammal evolution. And I've never forgotten that, an independent experiment. And he was so right. Uh, You know, we've got essentially the same genes as a kangaroo, but they work in somewhat different ways, and those ways are very informative. So just where the genes are turned out to be much more interesting than I thought it would be. We quickly discovered that, in fact, the sex chromosomes aren't exactly the same as the human sex chromosomes, as people had supposed. They're different in very interesting ways.
0: Can you tell uh, information, because you're, you're interested in evolution while you're looking at genes, do different of our genes have different evolutionary histories, if that question makes sense? Like, are there, are there parts of our genetic makeup that's much older than other parts?
1: That's an interesting question, and the, the answer, as always, is yes and no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so, some genes have been there since the year dot. You can see the same array of genes in a fish and a human. And they do more or less the same things. Uh, But the differences, and there aren't that many differences, are usually, well, one gene has made another copy of itself, or maybe four copies. And those copies now do different things. So they can be quite recent. And you can look, say, at, at a human and a chimpanzee, and you can find there are certain genes that are different. And that means that very recent changes in one or other of the human and the chimpanzee, or you can go right back and compare a kangaroo and a human, and now you're going back 150 million years, and you can ask, well, what's different? And we discovered that what was different was that a part of human sex chromosomes are actually not on the sex chromosomes in a kangaroo or any marsupial. And so we could start putting together, well, well, this is how it happened. There are actually two chunks of the ancient genome, and they're there in a chicken, and they're there in a of fish, they got put together uh, only in placental mammals. And that's most of our Y chromosome is actually derived from that bit of another chromosome that got jammed onto the ancient X chromosome. <laughs> so that was a, 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 great, uh, a great demonstration to me of how useful it is to go back in time by comparing mammals that are very distantly related It it can be kind of quite extraordinary for those of us who
0: aren't geneticists to hear that we share much of the same genes as a fish when
1: when biologically we're so different. How is this possible? It's amazing what a big difference just a few genes will make and not differences in the genes, often it's the differences in the timing of the genes. You know, a gross gene might be um, on for longer in an elephant than a mouse, for instance, (laughs) and so it simply grows a lot faster and a lot bigger. So you can get huge differences in the way animals look uh, just by turning on and off genes, the same genes, at different times.
0: You were fascinated by the work you were doing. And you also had a a rich family life with your husband and and two children. But then what happened one night after a flight home from LA?
1: Oh, (laughs) yes. Uh, Well, that was a bit of a downer. I you know, I'd just come back from LA it was a beautiful day in Melbourne and we're having a, a party at my sister's place next door and then suddenly I, I felt kind of dizzy and I thought hmm, maybe I've had a bit my champagne I'll go home and read a book. So I got up and I was a bit unsteady and I staggered home and picked up a book and I had two books and I thought, oh this is not good. I'm seeing double mm. I feel. I feel horrible. As a scientist, how were you assessing this situation?
0: You're you're at home. You're not well. You're seeing double. What What was your mind thinking might be happening?
1: My mind instantly thought there's something very bad happening in my brain. (laughs) which was, in fact, the the case. And
0: how scary Uh, was that? I mean, I think for anyone, but I think particularly for someone who's so uh, richly involved in the life of the brain and the life of thinking and of communication.
1: Yes, well, of course, uh, I had no idea what it was. I don't know that much about brains. I just knew that something was badly amiss. Uh, So I just... I didn't have much choice. I just had to stay there until my husband came and said, what's wrong? You know, why did you leave the party? Oh, oh, this doesn't look good. How quickly did doctors realise what was going on? It took a while because I was first diagnosed with a middle ear infection and the doctor was very reassuring. Oh, don't worry, it's probably a middle ear infection. You'll feel better in the morning. But, you know, I didn't. I felt terrible. I started throwing up and... Uh, That that continued for six months. So uh, I knew that there was something very bad. And eventually they took me to the hospital and uh, CAT scanned me. Uh, I mean, the the choice by that stage was a brain tumour or multiple sclerosis. And I was thinking, Mm. I don't really like either of those. And uh, I do remember the neurologist appearing at my bed saying, I have good news and bad. Not what you want your urologist to say. The good news is that they know what it is. It's a bleed from an abnormal malformation that I was probably born with, but it bled. Uh, And that's not that uncommon. And it's not unfixable, but it was a very bad place to have it, which was in the fourth ventricle, which is where you keep your heartbeat and your respiration, for starters. So I was extremely lucky because um, it stopped bleeding before it wiped me out, uh, which was, you know, probably a very good chance of being wiped out. And of course, if it happened again, it probably would have wiped me out. It had actually happened before, but I hadn't recognised what it was. And so did you have so, to have
0: surgery, Jenny?
1: I didn't have to have it. I had the choice of just hoping for the best, but I was told that my chance of another bleed would be about 5% a year, and I thought, I'm not sure I'd like to live with that possibility because the next one will be fatal, Um and so I chose uh, neurosurgery, which was fairly dramatic <laughs> neurosurgery, you know, with a microscope, taking hours. Uh, but it was very successful. But they did tell me that it would take 18 months to recover. And, of course, I said, oh, I'll show them. Uh, but it was exactly 18 months. And, and what were those
0: months like?
1: Well, to begin with, I really couldn't do much because I couldn't see I couldn't read. My mother read uh, the theses that I was supposed to be correcting. She read them out loud to me in the hospital, (laughs) bless her. Uh, And people were very nice to me, but I I couldn't really do anything. I couldn't even watch the tennis um, on the television because I couldn't see the ball. So it took a long time for... Was that um, distressing for you or did you find yourself
0: able to still think through interesting scientific problems or what was it like to
1: be inside you then? Well, uh, the thinking was the worst part because I I could think um, and of course I was so frustrated that I couldn't really express my thoughts in any way. But what saved me was that I couldn't really see and I couldn't walk, but I could type. I could touch type. And that really saved my sanity, I'm sure. Uh, so I I typed um, five grant applications. What? Um, you typed grant applications <laughs> from, I did. from recovering I, from I, neurosurgery? I, I typed five grant applications and I got the lot. <laughs> so I don't think there's... Ever been more thought and less skilled typing? I had a wonderful research assistant who uh, who proofread because course I was very very weak and my hands kept on typing quadruple Qs and quadruple Ls all over. So so she sort of translated it into uh, readable English, and the thoughts were there, and that really helped me enormously because it meant that I was doing something for my future.
0: You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au/slash conversations. So universities have been your world, Jenny, and you had to have that that break away from the lab and, and from your work when you were undergoing treatment for that significant neurological incident. But of course, there are many women and men who were away for periods of time because they're looking after babies or after young kids. What tangible things, Jenny, could help that stage work better, I guess, particularly for women, particularly for mothers?
1: Yes, I've given a lot of thought to this because my own experience was, was, was so ex- extremely difficult because there was not even any, uh, any maternity leave when I had my first child. No, so the no baby, paid maternity leave at all? No paid maternity leave at all. I mean, proper young women were supposed to resign And all my friends who had jobs in academia resigned and took on part-time demonstrating jobs. Uh, Fortunately for me, my husband was doing a degree, so I was the sole earner, so there was no way I could stop working. Otherwise, I'm sure I never would have got my lab back, as my friends didn't. What have you seen improved, and what could still be
0: improved, I guess, to allow women to keep working? Well, I was going to
1: say that, maternity leave is actually a two-edged sword. Really, really happy that we now have decent maternity leave. But my own experience is that women who take a long maternity leave have a really tough time getting back. And so I'm very much inclined to look for ways of keeping women engaged throughout the maternity leave. You know, I'd like to see help minding the baby while she goes to lab meetings. I'd like to see the possibility of writing something, you know, writing something jointly with a supervisor. Staying engaged is quite hard. There's so much else to do. But I, I think it makes it possible to, to come back, come storming back with new ideas and being able to resume your life. Otherwise, there's a, a big gap. And that gap is recognised and is recognised by granting agency, but it's still a gap that's very hard to cross.
0: You um, mentioned the attitudes that your mum encountered or the the pay discrepancy that your mother encountered when she was working in academia. What sort of attitudes were there when you were starting out about the role that you would have in the department, given that
1: you had two X chromosomes? Uh, I found that I was the only woman in the department And that didn't bother me at all, Uh, but I did look around and I could see that there were things that my male colleagues had and expected that didn't seem to be available to me. And I remember at one stage asking very politely, you know, how come that my male colleagues all had somebody to help wash the lab dishes and I didn't? And they all looked at each other. And then I knew, <laughs> I knew I had to be less polite. And I do remember the first staff meeting at which I was you know, very anxious to create a good impression, of course, so I was volunteering to do this and that and the other until we got to the last agenda item, which was who was going to organise the departmental Christmas party. And all eyes turned to me. And I forget what I said, but I never got asked to organise the (laughs) departmental Christmas party again.
0: (laughs) Well, you did after, you know, the challenges of of having children, you stayed in the lab. And then after this major medical incident, you got back into the lab and continued your study of the chromosomes that determine sex, the, the X and the Y. So tell me about how they look different in humans, the Y and the X chromosome.
1: Well, of course, we spent a great deal of time sequencing the whole human genome, so we now have a very complete readout. Uh, but then it was obvious that the X chromosome was quite big and it, it looked like it had about a 1,000 genes on it, whereas the Y chromosome was just a pathetic little thing, about a third the size, and it seemed to have almost no genes on it. In fact, there's only about 27 genes on on the Y chromosome, which are are specific to males. And so they're very, very weird. Why would that be? I like weird. (laughs) Why would that be,
0: though, Jenny? Why would they have developed so differently? You know, given that half the population would have an XY, the the males, and half would have XX, the females. Why such a, a
1: contrast between the two sex chromosomes? Well, this is what really got me interested. Why are they so weird? Is it so they work better or is it a horrible genetic accident? And my work showed that indeed it is a horrible genetic accident that once upon a time the X and the Y chromosomes were identical except for one gene. That gene is the one that makes a baby male. But what happens then is that other genes which are handy in males, you know, genes for making sperm and that sort of thing, They're acquired on the Y chromosome. That's a good place for them because they're not much use in a woman. So being on the Y chromosome is fine. But to keep those genes together, you've got to protect the sex-determining gene and these other genes. And that means you stop swapping pieces with the X chromosome. It's called recombination. And it's very important to keep the genome healthy. And any part of the genome that doesn't recombine starts accumulating junk and starts getting deletions and mutations. And that's exactly what's happened to the poor Y chromosome. So the poor Y chromosome doesn't swap bits with the X and it can't swap bits with other Y chromosomes because there's only one in the cell. So it's kind of stuck. And if there's a mutation on it, you can't get rid of it. So what has happened is the mutations uh, accumulate on the Y and deletions and uh, all sorts of, of stuffing up with junk DNA The other thing is that the Y chromosome is always in a testis. By definition, it's a testis-determining gene on it. And so where there's a Y, there's a testis. And the testis is actually a very dangerous place to be because you need a lot of cell divisions to make sperm. And each of those cell divisions is an opportunity for mutation. So the Y chromosome gets hit much more frequently than other chromosomes. So you can see why over mm. 150 million years, the poor Y chromosome has been hit and hit and hit again and hasn't been able to repair itself. And so that's quite general if you look at the Y chromosomes, the X and Y chromosomes in fruit flies, you see the same thing. Mm. So it's a, a well-known rule that you start off with a perfectly reasonable pair of chromosomes, but the male-specific one degenerates, and it degenerates very fast.
0: Back in the 1990s, scientists were were trying to find whereabouts the the sex gene was that determined a male developing. We knew that the XX meant female and the XY meant male, but scientists were trying to work out where on this Y chromosome is the gene that determines a, a, a boy be born. What role did kangaroos play in the hunt for the human male sex gene, Jenny?
1: Oh, well, that was a wonderful story because I was not working on sex. I was working on X chromosome inactivation. And then I started mapping genes to the X chromosome. But I wasn't particularly looking for that gene. Other people were, you know, there was a war going on, a group in in London versus a group in Boston were both uh, trying to whittle down the bit of the Y that had to contain that gene because there are people who have half a Y chromosome so you can tell which half has got that sex determining gene and there was a beautiful paper that came out in 1988 uh, with the first gene that had been isolated from the human X chromosome, it was called ZFY. And it looked like a really good candidate. You know, It was in all sorts of different placental mammals. It was specific for the male and not the female. And it could do the job, kicking, starting other genes. And we were asked to please, could you map this in kangaroos? Because if it's the right gene, it should be on the Y chromosome in kangaroos. So I got two of my PhD students to do the mapping. And what uh, did that
0: involve? Like, is that a long? Uh, is that are that hours of work, or or what? How much it was, was involved back it then? It was
1: weeks of work weeks. in those days because you you had to uh, use the gene which you had tagged with radioactivity, and then you had to figure out where it was by looking for where it darkens the film. So it actually was about six weeks of work. So when it was the time to develop the film and look at the spots and find out where this gene was, it was sort of late one night, And the boys were counting the dots, which is what you did. And I went home and they called me about one and said, One in the morning. I hope you're sitting down. (laughs) One in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you're sitting down because it's not on the Y in kangaroos. And I said, Oh, really? How strange, how interesting. <laughs> so you were bringing um, back very bad You better bad count news. a few more. <laughs> well, I thought, what do I do now? Uh, and by the next morning, it was quite clear they had the same result. Um, with two different species with two different probes and it was very, very consistent. So I called David Page at Boston and said, I hope you're sitting down because it's not on the Y. And, of course, he thought, well, that's just some peculiarity of peculiar animals, but it turns out not to be. And so we showed it was sort of our anti-Nobel prize work (laughs) and it it made uh, my two graduate students instantly famous. One of them, Andrew Sinclair, went back to London and did a postdoc and he was the one who discovered the real gene, the gene that really does the job on the human Y chromosome.
0: And that would be the same on all the, like on kangaroos as well, that that comparatively you can tell it's the same gene on different male Y chromosomes. Yes, you you can
1: tell it's the same gene. So it was more interesting than even that. He got the right gene. It was clear it was the right gene. If you stuck it in a a mouse egg that had two X chromosomes, that uh, a male mouse was born. So that gene certainly did the job. Uh, My other graduate student came back after... uh, having participated in this work. And it was he who showed that actually that gene has a friend on the X chromosome. And that was very important to us because it showed us how that sex-determining gene had evolved from another gene that did a completely different job. And in all of this
0: research or or work that you ended up doing, looking at the male chromosome, the Y chromosome, what were you starting to realise about its future?
1: Well, one thing we were able to do, which actually turned out to be a very surprising, was to go back even further in time to platypuses and echidnas that are egg-laying mammals. And we shared a common ancestor with them even longer ago than with kangaroos. So we thought, well, we can look back and see what were the sex chromosomes doing then. And to our great surprise, we found, first of all, they have a very bizarre system where they have multiple sex chromosomes, but also they're not at all related to kangaroo or human sex chromosomes. They're related to bird sex chromosomes. So that gave us a starting point. That meant that our sex chromosomes were actually much younger than we had thought, and it means that they were degenerating even more quickly. So instead of losing a thousand genes over um, 300 million years, they'd lost a thousand genes over half that time. And so that was when I was able to do a back of the envelope calculation and say, at this rate, our Y chromosome is going to be gone in a few million years. Well how did people react to that announcement? Well, that was very funny. I thought it was a bit of a joke, actually, because, after all, we haven't been human for more than 100,000 years. (laughs) And here I was saying, our Y chromosome is going to disappear in five or six million years. I thought, well, what a joke. Uh, I'd be very surprised if there are any humans around at that stage and we're going to deal with ourselves in, in lots of other ways before our Y chromosome disappears Men took it very seriously, and so did feminists. And I started getting all sorts of of letters to please contribute to this or that magazine. What well, the men which, were worried which I they were about to demise,
0: and certain feminists thought this is the end of men. Let's celebrate. Is that were they the two extreme I, I think ways that of reading this? was very. This?
1: I think that was very much the case, <laughs> uh, and I, I kept on saying, "Look, that's not going to work." I'm sorry, but we need men because. There are at least 30 genes that we need to develop babies that have to come from the sperm. These are called imprinted genes and they're actually silenced in the egg but they're active as they come from the sperm. So we can't be Amazon race of females only. Uh, that just is not going to work for people or for other mammals.
0: Has any other mammal uh, gone through an evolutionary experience
1: where they have lost the Y chromosome and, and survived? Well, that's a, that's a lovely story because we've known for a long time that there are strange rodents, both in Europe and in South America, that don't have a Y chromosome or do have a Y chromosome but they're not male. And so there's been a lot of effort and I've been pushing this for a long long time that we really would like to know how do they do it? Mm. They don't have an SRY gene that we know makes you male in humans and mice. What do they have? They still have half boys and half girls. So they must have replaced their sex gene and their sex chromosomes with something new. And very recently, a group in Japan that I've been following for a long time have discovered exactly what gene has taken over. And it's a lovely story and a very simple story. The gene that's taken over is actually the gene that SRY turns on so it is regulated differently on uh, in males and females. And so it actually defines a new Y chromosome. And we knew that that could happen, but actually finding out how it happened has been very important.
0: And you've also been involved in studying lizards in Australia where, where sex is determined by
1: temperature? I've always been fascinated with lizards, but I'd, I never thought I'd end up working on them. I thought, well, you know marsupials and monotremes and the odd bird. We did some work on emu. That's enough for anybody's career. But I, I got involved with another group. Uh, this group worked at the University of Canberra on lizards. And I suggested that we work together because they were very interested in sex allocation and sex determination in their lizards. And they had chosen a lizard that actually has a sex gene and sex chromosomes But what interested me is it had a lot of relatives that did it by temperature. And I thought, well, that could be really interesting. We could get hybrids and find out how temperature is regulated. Well, it turned out to be much better than that because this lid, which is the central bearded dragon, a very popular pet species, it does both. It has a gene that turns on the testes, and a very interesting gene it is too, and it has sex chromosomes, but when it's hot, they're all girls. (laughs) So it has some sort of sex-reversing override, and that's a wonderful (laughs) system to look at because we can look at how the environment interacts with, with known genes. So that's proved very, very informative.
0: Amazing. It's interesting in in the reaction that the general public had or elements sectors of the general public had in response to your work on the long future demise of the Y chromosome. I guess it 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 shows how Science and scientific research can be picked up in various ways by by different groups. I know when you first came back to Australia from the States, Jenny, you and your husband lived in a commune for a few years. I imagine that's where you designed your house. What, um, (laughs) What attitudes to science and scientists did you encounter
1: there? That was very interesting and really changed my perception of what I did. Uh, Because we we lived with 10 people who are very smart psychologists, sociologists, teachers, uh, but not scientists. And I was shocked to discover that they had a very negative view of science. They said, oh, it's just counting things. Oh, it's not important and it's downright dangerous. And so I spent a great deal of time trying to show that, to me at least, it was exciting that, yes, we're counting things, but we always had a hypothesis we were testing. We were always doing something new. It was exciting, and you never knew what was going to come out of it. That was a lovely thing. You weren't just trying to uh, design something. You were really looking at totally unknown things. Do you think you managed to convince those people? At the time, somewhat. I think now, our friends from the commune have really embraced uh, how exciting science has been for me. And uh, they are very supportive and very interested in what I've been doing. That's taken 30 years. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: a long game. It's, it's a long game, exactly.
1: I guess one of the wonderful things
0: about science is that you know, at least in theory, good scientists are happy to be proven wrong because it means that the sum of collective knowledge has been expanded in some way. If there's some new information that comes to light, even if it proves their previous theories to be incorrect, how have you witnessed that in practice?
1: That's one thing that I really learned about uh, because it, it's very hard to let go of a dearly held hypothesis that you've worked on for years and years and years. In fact, my students would, would say, how can you kill your baby? <laughs> <laughs> if we got a result that was just showed my hypothesis was completely wrong. Uh, but I learned from a, a wonderful, very famous Japanese biologist called Susumo Ono, He had over the years developed a hypothesis that the X chromosome was the same in all mammals. It was called Ono's Law. A law, no, less A law. Wouldn't you love to have a law? (laughs) And our work mapping genes in kangaroos showed that it was wrong. And so I was about to publish this work and I I happened to be in Los Angeles seeing a, a colleague and downstairs Susumu Ono had his lab. So I thought I should go down and tell the great man that we have broken his law. So I did and I went down and knocked very shyly on his door and he came to the door. I introduced myself and said, well, excuse me, Professor Ono, but we just broke your law. And he said, So? <laughs> he didn't care at all. And he explained to me that laws are made to be broken and that's how science progresses. And he invited me into his lab and said, uh, do you want to come and see what I'm doing now? He was writing, writing music using DNA sequence. <laughs> Writing DNA, using DNA sequence. Absolutely. And it was uh, played by the Stockholm Symphony Orchestra at a meeting I went to the following year. It wasn't that bad. It was a bit like Bach Took part Inventions, but it got a little boring after a while.
0: <laughs> well, that's perfect, Jenny, because music is something that has been important to you throughout your life as well. How, how did you meet your husband? Tell me how music played a part in
1: that. Oh, well... I'd always enjoyed singing and I was a a very bad pianist, but I I did love music. But it never occurred to me that I could actually participate in it. I thought you had to be really good to participate in it until I went to Berkeley. And it turned out that in my first year at Berkeley, one of our fellow graduate students had written a musical Called nuclear side story, <laughs> which tells us <laughs> tells of a story, side oh, story, exactly. <laughs> so west side story set uh, in two departments that were at war with one another. That was molecular biology and by bio- and biochemistry were at (laughs) war and um, Tony from the biochemistry department fell in love with Maria from the molecular biology department. It's all very sad and uh, Tony ends up being stabbed by a broken pipette and Maria (laughs) dies after drinking departmental coffee (laughs) And I got to sing Maria, and this tall guy called John Graves sang Tony, and that's how we met.
0: <laughs> Star-crossed uh, lovers who who, who found yes. true romance.
1: <laughs> it, it was it was very a very funny libretto, but it got me into singing because John sang in this very erudite little group called the Repertories, uh Repertory Chorus, so he said, well, why didn't I go and audition for it? Well, I'd never auditioned for anything and I couldn't sing from a score. So I really faked my way through the audition by, by listening very closely. Everybody got the same Dowland ballad to sing. So I did quite well. Well, you're involved in another
0: musical project right now. Tell me about Origins.
1: I have had a dream for a long time because I, I've sung in choruses for a long, long time. I sing a lot of religious music and I do enjoy singing Haydn's Creation. But every time I sing it and I look at the libretto, I shake my head and think, why are we still singing about Adam and Eve in 2023 <laughs> when there's so much gorgeous science? Now, why doesn't somebody write a creation from science? Nobody ever did. So over the years, I began to think, well, maybe I could. And this seemed like a preposterous idea. But I thought, well, you know, with support, I think I could do that. And I was really lucky that there was a fellow chorister, Lee Hayes, who's a poet and who really, really helped me write the libretto. We already were in contact with a very talented composer, Nicholas Buck, and our conductor, when I... When I told him of this plan, and he reacted with some shock and horror, but then realised, wow, this could be big. Mm -hmm. And he just called Nick Buck and said, well, you know, Haydn's creation, how would you like to write the update? (laughs) And Nick, wow, okay, this is a composer's dream, so we, we now have the libretto. We now have the, uh, the, the composition. We have the vocal scores for most of it. We're in rehearsal and it is so exciting to sing my words and see them given depth by the music. But, you know, it starts with a very profound th- thoughts mm. uh, that nothing is not nothing. Um, and it ends with man looking over the cosmos and answering questions about where does man think he's going. Jenny, thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. You're very welcome, Sarah.
0: It's fun to talk to you. Professor Jenny Graves was my guest on Conversations today. I'm Sarah Konosky. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: If you like conversations about big stuff, it doesn't get much bigger than parenting. I'm Maggie Dent, author, parenting educator and the Queen of Common Sense Parenting. You may have heard me on Conversations before, a few times, but did you know I have an ABC podcast? Actually, it's an award-winning podcast. It's called Parental as Anything. We tackle those big parenting problems straight on, the big ones and the small ones, while giving lots of practical tips and common sense solutions along the way. So, If you have tweens, teens, grandchildren or little ones of your own, let me help you be the parent you really want to be. Well, at least some of the time. Find Parental as Anything in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.